In brightest day, in blackest night, all other podcasts tremble in fright. Losers cower before the power. Oranges lust and blues you can trust. Indigos feel and white ones heal. Yellow scare and green ones dare. That sapphire love and black hands glove will rock your foundation without hesitation. Chad and Mars face evil's minds. Respect their power for they'll make you see the light. Hi everybody, I'm Chad Bokelman. I'm Mark Marble. And this is the Lantern Cast. Episode 309. That's right. Episode 309 is not a special number, but it's a special episode because we are doing a crossover. Our first actual, like, true crossover with another podcast, the Dr. DC Podcast. And joining us from the Dr. DC Podcast is the man with the worst kept secret identity since Oliver Queen, the doctor himself. (laughs) Yep, that's that's about right. That that seems to check out. I think everyone in Star City knows my identity too. Jeff Johns, everybody. Jeff Johns. <laughs> hey guys. Hey, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me, and thank you for having been on our show. Yeah, it was a lot of fun, a lot of laughs. Um, the longest episode of Doc DC to date, right? 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 <laughs> I I think I think so. It's close. Our Justice League one was pretty long, but I think this one might eclipse it. Until the editing process kicks in. <laughs> we'll, we'll have that's five assu- minutes that's, each. That's that's assuming there's an editing process at all. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So uh we actually have a topic in mind. We're what we're gonna do on the Doctor DC podcast, which aired last Wednesday, this 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 week, but Wednesday. If you haven't listened to that, go check it out. It's Green Lantern 101. Essentially, what we did is we followed the Doc's format and had a bunch of people ask a bunch of questions about the Green Lantern universe, in which we all piled in our respective answers. We were thinking about keeping the more complicated sort of questions for this show. But that would just be copying the Doc's podcast. <laughs> so what we decided to do was the top five most important moments in Green Lantern history for each of us. That can be a single issue, an arc, whatever. Um, and we decided that would be a little more interesting. It would get us get some insight into our personal preferences, our history with the character, and so on and so forth. But before we go into it, you guys, the regular listeners of our show, don't know anything about the Doc. So, Doc, go ahead and tell people who you are, how you got into comics, what your podcast is, and then we'll, we'll jump right, right into the top five. If, if it's all right with you, I won't tell them who I am, because this is a whole group of people that <laughs> to whom my secret identity hasn't already been exposed. Um, yeah, my, my birth name is Doctor. My last name is DC. Um, yeah, um, I... I've talked about it a lot on on our show, which is um, I got into comics because my father had sort of stacks of old Silver Age comics that um, weren't necessarily super well looked after, but um, 
I think he found them one day and he gave them to me. He thought, like, oh, like you might like these. Um, and it was mostly DC. There was a small stack of, uh, like, Invincible Iron Man in there. Um, but then it was also, uh, it was like Flash, uh, Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes, Justice League of America. Um, it, it had the first issue of DC Comics Presents was in that collection, um, which is uh, Superman and the Flash uh, team up. Um, and I got really into that world. And between that and then just growing up in the era with the X-Men cartoon and with the Batman, the animated series and all everything that sort of flowed out of the DCAU after that, I got just like swept up in superhero dumb. And for whatever reason, I have a brain that can absorb like lore. I'm terrible at math. <laughs> I have uh, like limited sort of, I would say like hard skills. Um, but uh, things like Lord of the Rings, Star Trek, even like James Bond, DC Comics, I've managed to, like, absorb the lore. I like immersing myself in those worlds and learning everything about the characters and how their powers work and uh, their histories and all those things. And I, I find that, uh, like, fascinating and interesting, and it's something that I'm actually good at. I haven't 100% monetized that ability yet, <laughs> but uh, but that's, that's basically what, uh, for a while, I ran a blog online... Uh, that maybe some of your listeners encountered because it was relatively big at one time. It was uh, Modern Mythologies. Um, it's modernmythologies.wordpress.com. I wrote a bunch of like long form sort of essays about like the mythological significance of characters and storylines in DC Comics. And then, yeah, we're less than a year now into the podcast sort of uh, format of that. But uh, instead of just me rambling on and on and on, we take questions um from uh listeners and uh, my cohorts uh, colin and richard have sort of varying degrees of awareness richard is generally comic book aware uh, colin is not at all but i think that makes for some fun because sometimes you go to explain something and you, you know you say like a weird sentence like uh shadow thief killed firestorm with shining knight's magic sword and to me it makes perfect sense and then <laughs> you look over at colin's face and it clearly doesn't. So it's uh, it's been a lot of fun sort of exploring comics from both perspectives, from the perspective of someone super immersed in it and also for newcomers and like where the jumping on points are and things like that. So that's that's like the brief history of Dr. DC, I think. Absolutely. And, you, and uh, for those who want to catch up and listen, new episodes every Wednesday, every Wednesday. That's right. Awesome. Awesome. So the format for this show, guys, we're going to talk about, like I said, our top five favorite moments in Green Lantern history. Again, arcs, issues, doesn't matter. Um, and what we kind of agreed to do is leave out the main Lantern origins for the most part, because we figured that might be too easy. So we kind of uh, that's our only caveat. What we're going to do is we're going to do a roundtable. We're going to uh, each name our specific number what it is and then we'll go back around and then explain what that uh why we chose that um so mark you want to kick it off should we let the guests start it off chad <laughs> uh, i mean it's I, I, the only reason i don't say that is because i feel like i know him and i you know it, all right fine go ahead doc <laughs> what's your number five hey, it's, it's 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 your house your rules um <laughs> okay my my number five I feel like I, we might expose through my list that I might 
I, my top moments, I think, aren't so much the out-of-continuity big moments, like that they were big in terms of comics, but more big in terms of, like, like I just said, the lore, like the stuff that I'm really into. So my number five might surprise you a little bit. I put uh, Green Lantern, The Lost Army, number one. Uh, and I put that in because that is guy dual-wielding red and green, but it's not just wearing both. It actually, like, you know, affects his costume. He's, like, an actual both lanterns. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, Mark, what's your number five? I'm looking at my list, making sure I have them ranked the way I really want them to be ranked. I would say number five. I'm going to go with Sinestro Core War. Awesome. And my number five is probably a surprise to some listeners considering how low it's ranked, but my number five is The Power of Ion, which is the story arc from Green Lantern Volume 3, issues 144 through 150. Doc, take it away. Why why is that your number five? Right, so um, I I find the idea... Well, the one thing I'll say is that I, I have this on the list because of what I feel it introduces to the mythology. I don't necessarily think that the Lost Army as a series actually delved into it enough or, or took advantage of it. But in this moment where you see Guy Gardner dual wielding these rings and it actually affects his costume and you see that he's simultaneously a red and a green lantern. It, it's not them fighting with each other. It's not them, you know, one against the other. It's that they coexist in him. That opens a whole door uh, in terms of the lore to explore what I would just call maybe like the secondary emotional spectrum. This isn't a thing that exists. I'm like, this is purely speculative, but like if you think of in the real world, we have the primary colors uh, like red, yellow, blue, and then you blend those and you get the other colors. If you imagine that the emotional spectrum, even though it's red and orange and yellow and that, if you picture those as the primary emotional colors, then it, then what that guy Gardner look and um existence calls into question is what does it mean to blend some of those what is the emotion between will and rage um and i don't know that i have an answer for that like i don't know if vengeance or aggression count as emotions but i i what i wish that series would have done was explore that idea further what are like the secondary emotions of the spectrum what happens when you blend and mix those things when they work harmoniously together and not in competition um so it's i maybe i consider it more of a lost opportunity but i think it's important that it happened canonically because it means that if there's a writer with the imagination and the and the the balls basically to go after it they could really blow the door off what the emotional spectrum is capable of i think yeah, that was also a story arc that introduced a concept, which unfortunately didn't get picked up in Edge of Oblivion. But the idea of that when these lanterns charged up at various power pyramids in this alternate universe, their color changed too. Yes. Which I thought was interesting. Which we both thought was interesting. Right. The idea <clears throat> that more or less that the power, the their version of the central power batteries were more like. It was like universal that it didn't. It wasn't just one 
emotion only. That pretty much if you had seven seven green lanterns hovering around a red lantern uh, p- power battery pyramid, that it would it would change the green and you'd be able to charge from it. That it was yes, that, exactly. That, which which to be fair, even though it's not something that not a concept that Chad and I like, the idea of the of the emotional reservoir that there being one. <laughs> right. Yeah. That being said, based on the concept, that, right? Based on the concept that there was an emotional reservoir, that kind of made some sense. The idea that that all these, that at the end of the day, all these power batteries are pulling from the same raw source, and it doesn't really matter what color it is at any given moment. That it's that all the emotional energy essentially flows together, and enough, and it can be used almost interchangeably depending on who's around. Which also gave more of an expo- a logical explanation for why there was why the why there could be a war of light in Relic's universe, why they were fighting to gain control. Because obviously, if there was only a limited amount of energy or light left, if you if you if you were like if you were the yeah. the color that was left standing, then all that energy would be yours. And if and if not, it could be taken and used by anybody. So so I, I yeah, did exactly. like that. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things in those storylines, you know, lights out onward, basically post Johns that are that are kind of you could take them or leave them. But I, that's more a matter to me of execution than the potential. Like, I think there's interesting stuff in there. And that's that's why I that's why this actually made my list, because I think it's fascinating. I just don't think it went deeply enough. Well, Cullen Bunn really, Cullen Bunn was really seemed to get the lantern. So, he, I, both Chad and I, Chad more than me, had issues with the way he kept diverting so many pages to John Stewart's flashbacks <laughs> in those like five or six issues that he had before he got that that book got the axe. But clearly, he was telling a more interesting story than what Edge of Oblivion became. You know, Edge of Oblivion was more or less a textbook non. It was an unmemorable story, other than the fact that it got everybody back into the universe, which you knew was going to happen anyway. Right. And one, um, one day, and one day we'll have to go back and talk about because we did save that when Cullen Bunn actually, at least temporarily, floated out in what, he, what was it? Was it a tweet that he put that out? The what, what his original it, it, plan it, it, was going to be, and then pulled it back real quick. Uh, it was an it was an AMA. He uh, Cullen Bunn has AMAs on Twitter every now and then, which is ask me anything for those of you who don't know. Yeah. So we sent out a tweet asking what the original plan was for the rest of the series if he didn't get the axe after six. and Because Edge of Oblivion, which something DC does sometimes that pisses me off is when they just make these editorial decisions. And Edge of Oblivion, which was supposed to follow up after Lost Army, left all of these threads completely dropped and never picked up again, uh, including Krona (laughs) and Relic. Relic. Um, Right. So we asked... We asked, or I asked Colin on on Twitter, and he answered. He had a whole like list of things, and then we retweeted it like holy crap, and then it disappeared. Which I guess means, oh. <laughs> yeah. Which I guess means we uh, <laughs> brought too much attention, <laughs> and Colin maybe was like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have said that. But we screenshot it. <laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> so so we have those answers still. Um, yeah, I'm, yeah, I mean, I'm always I'm always fascinated by stories cut short and things like that, too, because yeah. sometimes, you know, writers are begging your indulgence to be patient and actually let them 
build up to something and sometimes either the sales or if there's like an editorial thing happening it doesn't allow for that kind of time so it's sometimes it's a little too bad that way yeah all right mark sinestro core war go for it man i has between four and five i almost put this four because because but i at the when you know when the, when you go to my number four then it makes sense why this probably takes one step below even though i think sinestro core war is more of a complete story and more of a satisfying story part of the reason why i put sinestro core war in here is because obviously before we got to sinestro core war after green lantern rebirth there was an interest in green lantern again that jeff johns had brought to it but it wasn't like the whole world was watching or the comic world was really watching necessarily green lantern at the at that point i mean rebirth was good green the uh green lantern core recharge so the whole mythos was being restarted and going back to its roots, and there was an interest. There was an interest there, but if you go back and you look at the first, maybe like the first seven or eight issues of maybe the Jeff Johns Green Lantern run, once they relaunched that series, what in 2005, they were okay. It wasn't, you know, the, you had the Manhunters, and you had some stuff with Hector Hammond and and pre Black Entity Black Hand, uh, but it wasn't. It wasn't anything spectacular to me i think that book didn't really take off until they had the revenge of the what the green lanterns or whatever with the lost lanterns and bringing cyborg superman back right but but the sinestro Corps war the sinestro Corps war as a first as a whole that took everybody by surprise because of the fact that how that was really supposed to be just a green lantern it was supposed to be just a green lantern only event which for the most part it was as in how it was being contained but the interest in that spread pretty quickly, and the buzz about that spread very quickly. So there was a lot more interest in regular comic for and non just beyond your normal Green Lantern fan base. And the ramifications of that obviously had had an effect going forward with future events that were maybe that were certainly originally designed again to be a Green Green Lantern only. A story, but then it, but then it branches out because now there was so much more interest in how, and was really, you know, a high-profile character as we've talked about before on, on our show, that probably from, at the very least, probably from two, what was Sinister Core War was what 2007, right? 2007, I believe. Uh, yeah. Or they had, at least it finished in 2007, but from like 2007, probably through the at least to the end of 2009. You would make a, you could probably make the, the absolute legitimate case based on relevance, based on stories being told, based on sales, based on interest, that for that moment in time, Hal Jordan was essentially part of the Trinity. It was Batman, Superman, and Hal Jordan because, let's be honest, Wonder Woman in general doesn't sell a whole lot of books, and her stories really are not very particularly memorable. But Hal was having, in the Green Lantern stories, were having a huge impact on the DCU as a whole, not just in Green Lantern. So, and those stories were so like cosmic, yes. too, right? I mean, like Green Lantern Rebirth, I think, really like reinvented like the power that they were all dealing with and using. And then, yeah, Sinestro Core War. I mean, you just see the scope of these armies wielding that sort of terrifying power. It really like I think put into perspective how major a uh, heavy hitter Hal Jordan was for those who might not have thought so before, right? And you had that, and that one, and that one shot is so, it was so memorable because there's so many, so many big reveals happen in that one shot. It's, I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to remember, or for, for a lot of people, it's hard 
now to go back and remember how much stuff do we take for granted now or stuff that we know has happened, but all so much got introduced in that one issue. That that yeah. that was the issue that you found that we we, we were told that that Ion was essentially the Green Lantern version of Parallax, that he was a living yeah. entity. That's where the Ion power came from. We were you know we were surprised we were su- we were surprised you know when you basically the you know the heralds you will of of this, this the Sinestro core that Sinest- you had Sinestro and you had you know and then you had you know, Cyborg Superman which wasn't that much of a surprise Superboy Prime was pretty cool uh, Kyle becoming Parallax was you know that caught a lot of people by surprise and the huge reveal at the end that the not only was the Anti Monitor back in the DCU yeah. but the Anti Monitor was the Guardian of the Sinestro Corps. So I yeah, think, that was, yeah. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think like that to me, like solidified just how like it showed that DC wanted to put um, a lot of significance into the Green Lantern corner of things. When you pull out a character as like devastatingly powerful as the Anti-Monitor and you, you put them on the side of the Sinestro Corps, then how powerful must the Green Lanterns have to be or how much must they have to overcome to ever have a hope of defeating something like that, right? Like there's, there's a, like a real like turning point there that you've just like touched on where Green Lantern is given basically the reins to be like the powerful one. True, and then you also have the fact that that was also the storyline that, that basically allowed Green Lanterns to kill <laughs> as a yes, ramification yeah. for dealing with this. So again, dealing, changing the power set, changing the status quo, but I and that just opened people's eyes for what Green Lantern could be, and it just and it just started. It was it picked up from where Rebirth left off, and it started the the pinnacle going as you were building towards the apex of what the Jeff John of what Green Lantern probably has ever been, and certainly under the Jeff Johns era, as I like the phrase, that the golden age of Jeff Johns, that was the golden age of Jeff Johns. The second step, building, going up on that ladder, was this, was the Sinestro Corps War, and I think that's that's why I have it. Yeah, totally. I mean, especially along the lines of the Anti-Monitor, just because a lot of people forget, in Crisis on Infinite Earths, one of the first things the Anti-Monitor did was take the Guardians off the playing field. Yeah. So Crisis didn't have that head-to-head face-off. John Stewart was involved, but you know, I mean, barely. <laughs> Guy was gone. Hal wasn't the Lantern. The the Guardians were in some sort of stasis, and the Green Lantern Corps was dealing with that. So like, when you when you got to Sinestro Corps War, not only was it a huge deal for just the Green Lantern mythos, but all and a sleeper hit because nobody was really expecting it to be as big as it was but just for dc fans it's just like and the guardians even mentioned it you know in in that storyline they say something to the effect of like last time we were out of the picture and now we have the opportunity to face you so you finally get to see what it's like to have the green lantern Corps go up against the anti-monitor and the guardians and everything Mm -hmm. so that was kind of cool kind of seeing that not necessarily even a rematch but like why, I mean, he has to consider them a threat to take him off the playing field during crisis, right? So why did he take him off the playing field? All right, let's show that, that, that fight. Yeah. So that yeah, was exactly. Um, So mine is the power of Ion. Uh, it's no secret to the listeners of the show that the power of Ion is one of my single favorite Green Lantern stories of all time. Um, it's a huge character piece for Kyle Rayner. 
and has a bunch of good character moments, especially for uh, people like Jon Stewart and uh, and Jade. Um, for those of you who don't know, this is a storyline where it's almost like a, a bookend um, of sorts for the first 50 issues or so of uh, uh, 150, whatever. No, 100. About 100. Uh, about 100. Yeah. Yeah, about 100. About 100 issues of the Kyle Rayner run. Um, it kind of wraps up some of the ideas put forth in Emerald Twilight and Final Night and some of the stuff with Oblivion and, and things like that. Uh, and then takes us into this new era by way of this godlike power that Kyle Rayner receives. Um, and spoilers, <laughs> the way it ends is the way I think uh, is, is a big... Uh, uh, character piece for Kyle Rayner. Kyle Rayner gets the powers of a god, uses them for a while, but after a few conversations starts thinking, and in the in the wrap-up issue for that story arc, in issue 150, t- goes to Oa, meets Ganthet on Oa, re- pours that power back into the central power battery, reignites the battery, and brings uh, back to life, essentially, the Guardians of the Universe. So it kind of wraps up all these kind of uh, tail ends and, and things from um, the, the that have been established in the Kyle Rayner run, and now kind of sets the stage for things to come. Uh, and the, you know, the Green Lantern run would wrap up a little while later, and then we get Rebirth and all that. But without this you'd have another sort of story where you have to reignite the power battery, bring back the guardians, blah, blah, blah. And I don't think it could have been done quite as well as this story did it because this story not only was a good story, but it had so much something that I think is missing from a lot of current comics uh, is a lot of characterization beats. There's moments where Kyle and Jade, along with uh, John Stewart and his, girlfriend uh marin i think uh go dancing in a club because john just got back the use of his legs thanks to kyle and some psychotherapy and and uh they decide to celebrate not by like hey i'm gonna whip up a ring for you and we'll go fight an alien so that you can feel alive again but they decide let's just go dancing and enjoy life so they devote a couple of pages to that and then you have the john stewart issue where it's revealed that John Stewart, as a kid, took a car joyriding and got in an accident with his little brother and what he thought was a puppy in the back seat. But the puppy died. Uh, but it turns out he blocked out part of his memory, and that wasn't a puppy. His little sister was in the back seat, and she died. And he's been living with that guilt, and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of that in there. And that issue was like riveting. And it's mostly John Stewart reliving his past on a couch in a psychotherapist's office. Like, Yep. How many times do you get that these days? So not only is it a fantastic story, it's a great end point for a certain moment within the Kyle Rayner run and fantastic beginning. And it's a nice bookend, too, because if if you look at Kyle Rayner becomes Green Lantern because Hal Jordan basically gains unlimited power and uses it to destroy, it's kind of a nice like bookend for Kyle Rayner to get almost unlimited power and use it to create like it, it really like separates the their two kind of characters there 
like a, it really like I don't know. I, I like the idea that it's like a the counterpoint to Emerald Twilight a little bit. Yeah, that's true. And, it all, and sure. going, kind of going along with that, it also in a way trying to give Hal a little props here that it also gives it's but at the same time mostly I mean just as much Kyle. It shows Kyle's ability to not just learn from mistakes, but his ability to under basically back to like the Clint Eastwood, you know, the Dirty Harry line: "A man's got to know his limitations." That Kyle yeah. has that that Kyle knows what he can do and what he can't do, and Hal's you know Hal's one of the ones that comes to him and tells him, kind of has been that voice in his head, kind of trying to trying to keep him on the straight and narrow, not because, as he points out, not because he thinks Kyle's going to do the wrong thing with it, just because he wishes there were somebody to tell him the same thing when he was in that position, that he wishes there was yeah. somebody whispering in his ear as a counter, uh, as we would know now, you know, as we know now, it would be a counter to the whole parallax Sinestro influence to him, but it doesn't matter, the fact is he wished there was somebody to point out that this, there could be ramifications you don't understand, and so even though Kyle could have changed the past, even though Kyle was had the ability to basically prevent Hal from going rogue, and yet keeping and keeping everything connected, time-wise, thread-wise, so so everything would still be exactly the way it was now. Not where oh you yeah. couldn't do that because Hal had to die, had to become Parallax, so he could become so he could die saving you know the the Earth in Final Night, and it's like Kyle made it clear that that's not the way time worked for him. That it was you know he could keep it he could just basically alter this one piece and keep everything tied together. But yet, at the yeah, end of the day, exactly. he decides that, you know, that he doesn't really have, he's not the right person for this. He doesn't have the knowledge or the experience for this power, so he gives it back to, to though, as we've seen, probably not, not history would say maybe not the best choice, <laughs> but he gives, he returns yeah. the power to where it came from, even and obviously, up until Jeff Johns kind of crapped on him, Ganthet would be the one person, the one guardian you would trust with, with the power to begin with. To, to oversee yeah. this and to raise these guardian babies to go to instill in them a, a new set of basic humanity. Kyle's the only like the only one of those sort of main lanterns that I would trust with that kind of absolute power. It's why he's the only one that made sense as the White Lantern. Um, it's why he's so great in that Omega Men uh, series where he's. I I love okay. <laughs> <laughs> I like I like Kyle in that series because he's the only one questioning the rights or the wrong of the actions around him. Because um, I think what that Omega Men series points out is that both sides have lost sight of the like victory at what cost sort of thing. Uh, so I like Kyle in there. I think he's the only one that I'd I wouldn't want John Stewart to have like unlimited power i definitely wouldn't want guy to have unlimited power <laughs> uh i'm just not a big fan of the omega men series <laughs> that's all um no but I, I you know i agree with everything you said it's it you know listeners of the show know i just i i believe that kyle should always be a torchbearer of some kind is it cool to see him now back as a green lantern sure um but I I think based on what we've seen so far, has he been utilized very well, Mark? No, no. <laughs> yeah. Over, over, overall, no. I I think and again he he's getting he's getting a decent amount of face time considering that they have been per, they kind of like purposely have been partnering him up with Hal. Yeah. 
So, which is which? Which if they did, if they took away the joking, bickering, you know, dick waving all the time between the two of them, that would be really cool because <laughs> of the fact that we ne- you, you really never got many opportunities to have on equal quote unquote equal footing as equal footing as they're ever going to get. You never really had Kyle and Hal as Green Lantern doing all that much together. You know, it was always Hal's Parallax, Kyle is Green Lantern, Hal's the Spectre, yeah. Kyle is Green Lantern, Kyle is Ion, Hal is the Spectre. It was, it was, it was very, it was almost never on equal footing, and certainly almost never eyes Green Lanterns. And for them to be kind of like partnered up, it would be, it would be, it would be cool to, to see that. But it just constantly becomes uh, anything I can do, or you can do, I can do better. Even though it's mostly coming from Kyle, seemingly as he's being written, Kyle's insecurity. And living in, in Hal's shadow, but I, he, yeah, I don't think he's being, I don't think he's being used that well. I really, given the given the choice, when once the whole Doctor Manhattan thing is over with, uh, which won't be till friggin' next year, that it would be nice. To, I would like to see Kyle go back to being white, uh, but but we'll see. Who knows what's gonna happen between now between between now and then? But yeah. All right, number fours. Mark, take it away. So four and five, I mean, number three technically is really close to my number five. When I get to it, it makes sense. Uh, But number four, I'm going to go with Blackest Night. Uh, My number four is, it didn't have a traditional storyline title, so I went with one of the individual issues. I call it Captives of the Mad God, which is Green Lantern Volume 3, Issues 5 through 8 from 1990. I went with uh, Green Lantern Rebirth number four. All right. Mark, take it away, man. So Blackest – so again, kind of following up what I said for Sinestro Core War. If Sinest- if Rebirth started everything rolling and started everything trending upward and Sinestro Core was taking it close to the top of the mountain, obviously the at the very least the buildup – Towards in the in the first few issues of Blackest Night, were absolutely the pinnacle of what Green Lantern was as far as interest, popularity, exposure. It, you know, like it's curating all throughout everything, all all media. You could sort of absolutely make the case that the that Blackest Night pretty much was probably the main reason that Green Lantern movie was pushed was pushed as quickly as not as quickly as relative. But I mean, the reason why they wanted to do Green Lantern was because of how popular Green Lan- that movie, because of how popular Green Lantern had become, and and the scope of the stories they could t- they could tell with it. Blackest Night, obviously, and I'm gonna I'll get to what it was following up on because there's something else on my list that re- that kind of like bridges the gap. But Blackest Night took you know took the emotional spectrum concept and really fleshed it out more. We actually didn't really get to see the Indigo Tribe until. Until um, in full glory, if you will, until Blackest Night, what they could do and how and how how their powers truly worked. The the fact that the black the Blackest Night began as a just oh this is going to be a DC event and basically between the Dio talking to Jeff Johns and, and it turned into this huge corporate event, this huge DC event, not a Green Lantern event, with you know with all the miniseries and the, you know and and the tie-ins and everything else. It was just and there was just a, it, and there were very interesting concepts introduced introduced in it. We got you know between the 
Green Lantern issues and the actual miniseries. You know, we got all the other all the other entities, the emotional of the spectrum. We got to see where they essentially came from. Uh, seeing whether you thought it was fair or not, seeing Sinestro be kind of like a, I guess, kind of throwing a curveball, but we kind of figured Hal would be the one to be hosting the white entity. That, it, that Sinestro was the one who actually got to host the white entity. There were just lots of things, and they're bringing back, you know, bringing back classic parallax, kind of, sort of, you know, because of the fact that they, they still had to ruin it with the stupid jagged teeth thing. But having him be, become parallax again for Green Lantern 50, keeping that, basically setting that tradition and keeping that going as he took on the Spectre, picking up on the threads of things that were kind of touched upon in back in Green Lantern Rebirth about the relationship between the Spectre and Parallax. and Just Blackest Night was the absolute height of what Green Lantern was, and especially now where we look at where Green Lantern is, certainly from a sales perspective and an interest perspective, and even how and the stories that are being told and how... Yeah, it, it just—it's kind of sad seeing where we've come. Like in like nine, nine, nine years, nine years definitely seems a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. But, well, it's kind of crazy that something that big and that broad in scope was so, generally speaking, cohesive and well written. You know, you think like you maybe even if the main story is is tight all of the other stuff's got to be relatively weak just because there's too much going on but blackest night i mean doesn't have too many major weak links even across those tie-ins and things like that which is i think that's surprising well secret six <laughs> well, that's why I said too many. <laughs> I mean, they, yeah, they not had, perfect. They, they, they not had, perfect. Yeah, they had so many uh, tie-ins and crossovers and minis that you knew some of them were not going to be good. I mean, just yeah. and plus, let's be honest, some of the characters that had got minis just aren't really good, interesting enough characters to begin with. So, of course, their the minis are probably not going to be good. Well, even some yeah. of the resurrecting titles were fantastic, like the Starman, the Phantom Stranger, the Adam and Hawkman, stuff like that. Um, yeah. but even with Blackest Night, you just forgetting the, the arc itself, the, the prelude, one of the most popular issues <laughs> is probably Green Lantern 42, which is the all black hand issue where he leads up to him killing himself before he becomes, you know, the, the entity. entity of, of, that's, of the black. That's a terrific issue, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, so many people love that issue and Jeff Johns has gone on record saying like, he believes that issue will be remembered for years to come as probably Doug Monkey's like single, you know, finest achievement in comics. So like, I mean, it's just every time I go to my LCS and they have like four different storefronts, but one of them is a disc, discount comic shop. Uh, you, you go into the, the cheap bins and they have like half a long box full of copies of issue 42, not because they couldn't sell them, but because they sold so many that they ordered so many. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> so, like, I mean, it's just a, it's a hugely popular issue, and that's just one of the preludes to the big arc. <laughs> so, yeah, for yeah, sure. Um, mine was Captives of the Mad God. Uh, for those of you who uh, know what I'm referring to, this is, uh, I mean, it's, you, could, you could make the argument that it's actually issues one through eight, but... Uh, Primarily, it's it's five through eight, and this is a storyline where um, the Green Lantern title has started up again, following the Action Comics weekly run, um, and we, you know we finally have our own series again. 
and how is uh, going to Oa because um, old timer who is the guardian who uh, accompanied him and Oliver Queen on their hard traveling hero's journey. Something has gone wrong with old timer. Essentially what this story is, is old timer has throughout his travels, both with Oliver Queen and Hal, as well as his travels throughout the universe, because at one point he leaves the company of green arrow and green lantern to travel this cosmos. Old timer has gone nuts and is essentially pulled to Oa a patchwork of all the places he's visited. So there's a town that Hal and Old Timer and Oliver visited on their hard traveling heroes days that's plunged right next to a city from Zudar, which is Tomar Ray's planet, and so on and so forth. It's a patchwork planet, a mosaic, if you will. Um, and this is a story, it's one of the, it's not only a, the, the, like a, a big kickoff to this new Green Lantern series, but it's, uh, it's one of the times you get Hal and Guy and John all together in this big story arc. They go up against a guardian. Um, and I don't want to you know, do an entire plot synopsis, but the way it ends, some guardians help uh, Hal, John, Guy with Old Timer in defeating him. And as a result, the Guardians decide to restart the Green Lantern Corps, which obviously will be destroyed about 50 issues later. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but this is this is a point where b- before this, you have kind of the crisis-ish era, the Green Lantern Corps era, which we kind of talked about a bit on the on the Doctor DC podcast episode. But there was an era there for a little bit where there were about five to ten Green Lanterns. You had Kilowog, and you had Salak, and Chip, and Aresia, and uh, and Hal, and so on and so forth, but they were all sort of headquartered on Earth, and, you know, Millennium happens, and all of this kind of crap. Um, but beyond those, you know, small groups of Lanterns, there is no Green Lantern core beyond that, because in about, was it issue 200, I believe, issue 200 of Green Lantern, the Guardians go off with the Xamarons to make Whoopi. I mean, essentially it. But they, you know, there's weird story arcs. They don't come back, blah, blah, blah. And since issue 200, you know, you have these set group of lanterns. And then you have the uh, the Action Comics Weekly stuff. And that's kind of about it until this series where you start off with Hal and John and Guy. But by the end of this, the Guardians say, we're going to bring back the core. So it's it's in much the same way I said that the power of Ion was a bookend series. This story arc is also a very important bookend series because you had so long without the core. Uh, you had some, but you had so long without the main group and the mythos, and then all of a sudden you have three major Earth Green Lanterns teaming up to face down a Guardian who's gone mad and blah, blah, blah. And it really shows the extent of the power of the Guardians as well as the Green Lantern Corps when it's harnessed correctly. And then at the very end, you get kind of the new beginning. We're bringing back the core. So I really enjoy that. I don't think we've ever covered it on the Lantern cast before, Mark, but maybe we should at some point. No, I think, I mean, I actually, I think that's in what the graphic novel, what the, the road back or the long uh, way back, or something like that. 
I don't have that one, but maybe. I think that ca- I think that covers like the first eight, uh, maybe the first eight or nine issues of the Gerard Jones run. But yeah, I, I actually have a lot of fond memories of the Gerard Jones run because once I started backtracking, once I got introduced through Kyle, I went back and I started re- wanting to read about Hal. A lot of the stuff that was certainly at the time relatively easy to get was most of the Jeff jo- the, excuse me the Gerard Jones run. So like I was able to get you know Green Lantern number one from the Gerard Jones run and and, and over the years pick up you know a lot I don't have the, I just don't have the, the entire run but I have a good chunk of the Gerard Jones run so yeah I I do like that with John and and Guy and Appa and and Rose and all the characters that were introduced in that so I did I I did like that so yeah I actually would be very interested we definitely could set set some time to do. Uh, I think in general we should set some time to do more of the Gerard Jones run um, because there there are some interesting arcs in that uh, during that era. For sure, Doc. What are your memories of this? You ever read this story arc? Uh, my memories are spotty of this one, to be perfectly honest. But um, but I'll my my admitted blind spot is that I'm not a huge Kyle Rayner Green Lantern fan part of it is a matter of like exposure but i'm also just like i like i said at the top like i came up on silver age so i'm i'm all about how i was all about barry even though i grew up in the wally west era of flash barry's always been my flash like i i I feel and i feel that sort of like across the the board um like when things got changed up like i i hated like nightfall (laughs) in batman i you know i um, I, I now appreciate like uh, Reign of the Superman more than I did when I was younger. I didn't like the idea of like four imposters, um, which maybe is the point. Maybe that's what they wanted people to feel like. But, um, but I so I think for me because Kyle's kind of one of those. I'm not as into him. I just I haven't gone through like the full kind of run of him as a Green Lantern. Most of my exposure to Kyle as a Green Lantern is through, like, JLA stories or things like that, as opposed to actually, like, his uh, solo stuff. Well, this is actually before the Kyle run. It's the start, because Kyle's run Oh, shit, no, sorry, you're right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, right, because Hal's still around. Yeah, yeah. Because this, this is issue five, five through eight. Because Kyle starts oh, shit. Like oh, fifth. right, we're at the beginning of this. Yeah, he starts. Yeah, yeah. Like, he shows up in what is it, forty-eight or something? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I, I I haven't read I haven't read, but um, I I liked the Hard Traveling Heroes run though. So the fact that it has the tie with Old Timer that is of interest to me. Um, like is is that a particularly like other than it being the same character is it a particularly like strong like reference to like that oh yeah era? oh like, yeah absolutely uh, yeah because like Rose is from a town that they stopped in during yeah. hard traveling heroes and yeah old time right. you know uh, old timer keeps trying to convince Hal and stuff like that because he has a feels he has a bond with him because they have know, a history yeah. yeah exactly interesting yeah i like like i said i don't really have uh, like a perspective on this arc it's one that i i don't know all that much about but i'm interested you've you've sparked the interest in me i i don't know if i'll actually get around to it before you guys get around <laughs> to doing an episode i might have to like hold off on listening to your episode if i'm still like trying to work my way through it 
<laughs> no worries. All right, what the your number four? You said Rebirth number four. Yeah, Green Lantern Rebirth number four. Um, so this is the one. It's uh, Ollie and Kyle and Sinestro kind of locked in locked in battle. Um, and the reason that I picked this. It's not the first or only example of a non-lantern using a ring, of course. But to me, the moment where Ollie takes the uh, the ring that like Hal had given him, puts it on. Oh God, how does he do the? He tries to do the oath and he can't remember the whole thing. Uh, he, uh, yeah. What does he say here? Uh, like a brightest day, a blackest night. He gets partway through and then he says like, Ah, crap! How the hell does this? How does the rest of that go? Um, but he manages to make a construct, an arrow construct, and he shoots Sinestro, but that the effort of doing it completely exhausts him, completely like drains him. Um, there's a couple of things that I find interesting about that. So like I said, and like we talked about on the Dr. DC podcast, it is not the first time that somebody other than a lantern took a lantern's <laughs> ring and used it. Um, you mentioned <laughs> the... the uh, infamous doomsday annual there's um but there was also um like weapons master in the justice league america run in the 90s um and um lord malvolio in the 80s who whose i guess father had been a green lantern and then he murdered him and took the ring so like we've seen other people take the ring and use it before but what i liked about this is that it sort of established the idea of it's not 100% foolproof that you're chosen by the ring, but the ring chose you because you have the the capacity, like the, the ability to channel that willpower. Um, it's not that other people absolutely couldn't, but it's that they aren't, it's not, it won't come naturally to them. And it could, I mean, in all these cases, it exhausts them, but it, I get it. You could make the argument it could very easily kill you too, to try and do it. Um, and I think you see that idea spring up in other places. Um, I think you see it with even in like as recently as something like Forever Evil, Batman uses that Sinestro core ring, and then later Sinestro says something about you know next time you try to use one of my rings, don't hold back. You know, like um, there's something about channeling those sort of primordial emotional energies that's taxing on any sort of random individual. There's something special about people that wield lantern rings. Um, and and I, I like the idea that Sinestro can, considers Oliver to have like a weak will. Like he, Sinestro doesn't see that shot coming because he doesn't think he can pull it off. Uh, Green Arrow does summon the willpower to make a construct, but that's a very like temporary thing. But I like the idea that, that, um, it also throws Sinestro off. Sinestro has like the old belief, maybe that only the chosen can use the thing. But Green Arrow simultaneously proves him right and wrong. He proves him wrong in that he is able to make a construct, but he proves him right in that like he couldn't just sustain holding, <laughs> you know, like holding the power of a Green Lantern. And I I find that interesting. Again, like I said, I think my picks. And I'm trying to find. I think I was trying to find things that sort of resonated with like the lore of the green lantern and i like that idea there's there's an an exclusivity to the green lantern court but it's not absolute and i think that issue really like illustrates it 
For sure. I still remember that. I remember that page. You just see Holly collapse. And you also see the strain on his because it's a, it's a full-page shot, right? Where, yeah. he's, where he's shooting off the arrow. Yeah, I, he's almost collapsing as it's happening. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, exactly. You can, you can imagine... I, I, th- I think of it almost like, you know, when you hear those news stories about, like, someone's kid is, like, trapped under a car, and then the adrenaline kicks in, they lift the car, but it, like, tears all the muscles in their body or something like that. I, I, to me, that's what that, like, page, what that moment is, is that he's, you know, like, up against the wall, Ollie has to do this thing, and he does, but, it you know, whatever the, the uh, mental or emotional equivalent of muscle tearing is, that's what happens to Ollie as he fires off that shot. And there's also the conversation with Kyle afterwards when he asks, and he says, "When he says, is is that what it's like every time? And or is that is that what it's like yeah. for you?" And he goes, "Yes, every time. That's what it's like." So it kind of does. This, so it does establish the uniqueness of well, what, which is Nest, which I I did like the fact that they tried to make it where not any Joe Blow can just take, hey, take take your power ring and go make a, car, a flying car in the sky and stuff like that. That that you need to have. That not only do you need to have a unique ability, but you but you really need to focus to be able to use that ring to do anything with it, let alone make a you know make a impressive construct, making any kind of construct. But yeah, well, and I, Kyle and Kyle is also known for like his sort of creativity, right. you know, being an artist and that. So if he's able to make constructs with a degree of creativity, then that yeah, like you said, that shows like the level of willpower that he possesses and can channel. Right, so that was a nod to even though it's, it's this is this whole arc. The arc was about bringing back the core, the, the miniseries, but it also, but it really was bringing back Hal just as much. But, mm. but as many people pointed out, that even though clearly Jeff Johns has much more of an affinity for for Hal, the reality is with a different writer, the easy way to go would have been to have Kyle die in that miniseries. It's like out with the old, in with the new, and vice versa. Really, in this case. Yeah. But instead, yeah. that Kyle actually get, Kyle really gets elevated even in the process. He gets elevated, and Greenlight. I mean, re, I mean, we're going to talk about Rebirth more later. Rebirth four is probably. I think both three and four are, are really good, so I don't want to get put the cart in front of the horse. But sure. I, <laughs> but I like four because of the fact that four was a four is when Hal gets returned to his body at the end. Yes. Four is has that, and to me that is that two page, the last two pages of that book when the ring flies off, like flies away from Ollie, flies past Sinestro, and he has this dumbfounded look on his face. Goes over to Hal's body in in, in the mm-hmm. coffin when he's still in the parallax armor. Goes to him. You see, uh, Ganthet has returned Hal's spirit to his body at that point, and you hear you see Hal's thoughts. About how now he you know no more fear, no more confusion. He's thinking like him, like myself again. The the gray temples are gone, and just when he just when yeah. he, and then that final splash page when he steps out of the coffin, like Sinet, like Sinestro, get the hell away from them when and he's got the ring. I mean, to me that is. I remember when I first got that issue and the goosebumps that gave me when I got that issue, and that and to me that is pro. There are lots of things that are memorable in the, in. In rebirth, but to me that 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 final page of that issue is probably the thing that I remember yeah. the most about rebirth. So yeah, that was that's if you were gonna pick one issue, that's that was a really good one to pick. Yeah, and it's like the I think the narrative box was something like uh, I think I, I don't have it in front of me, but I still remember it was like I call to it, it comes to me as it always did, you know, something like that. Yeah, yeah, 
Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, tying, yeah, tying it into his like a plane, my girl, yeah, or yeah. something like that. Yeah, she, yeah. So yeah, that that was just great. It was great writing. It was just it was just the way the art was, how you saw the subtlety, and you could see the physical the physical changes in him, and then just when he you know he basically came back to came back to life, and he came back to life as a that was the moment you know the real moment if you will of Hal Jordan it's his individual rebirth physically and everything emotionally spiritually so that was yeah uh-huh. yeah totally uh, all right number three is I'll start here uh, I went with the origins and history of Thorn as in Rose and Thorn from the Golden Age Ooh. Doc uh, I went with uh, DC Comics presents number twenty six. Mark? Kind of a cop-out a little bit because we touched upon the main arc. I'm going to go with Green Lantern 25, Volume 4, Green Lantern 25. Gotcha. All right, the origins and history of Thorn. This one's a little complicated, but bear with me here. So this is a couple of different issues. This is from the Golden Age, Flash Volume 1, issues 89 and 96. This is with Jay Garrick. Uh, This is Superman's Girlfriend, Lois Lane, number 113. And Infinity Inc. Annual Number One. Um, Rosenthorn from the Golden Age is Rose Canton. Uh, Rose Canton is her, her civilian identity. Thorn, at least in terms of who you think she is in the beginning, is supposedly her sister, um, her evil sister with like think poison ivy sort of powers. Um, in, in one of the issues, I believe 96, of, of The Flash, uh, she gets into a fight with Jay Garrick. Um, however, there was an unpublished issue, unpublished story of uh, Rose Canton slash Thorne going up against Jay Garrick. It was never published. However, two pages of it were published in Superman's Girlfriend Lois Lane number 113. She goes up against she goes up against Jay, uh, gets knocked out, whatever. And Alan agrees to take her with Wonder Woman's permission to a different island. I forget the name of it. It was like Recovery Island or something like that. Um, but essentially Paradise Island to um, kind of help her out because um, Rose and Thorn are the same person. Now you don't they, they don't really know this but this is revealed later on. You find all of the entirety of the story out in Infinity Inc annual number 1. And what Infinity Inc annual number 1 tells you is that when Alan drops off Rose uh, at the the uh, the island and flies off that time period Rose has become obsessed with Alan or with Green Lantern. One day she overhears Wonder Woman talking about something and learns that Alan Scott and Green Lantern are one and the same. Somehow she gets away from the island, finds him, dyes her hair black, and under the name Alex Thorin, that's A-L-Y-X or something like that, uh, uh, Florin, sorry, not, not Thorin, uh, Florin, um, falls in love with Alan, they get married, they have a honeymoon in which they sleep together under like a green bubble construct thing he makes. And when he passes out, I guess, after their 
honeymoon night, she puts on the <laughs> ring, which re- reawakens her thorn personality. She goes nuts. The place explodes, burns down. Alan manages to get out, but thinks that, quote-unquote, Alex is dead. Well, Rose manages to get control of herself back, and a few months later, she has two babies, twins, Jade and Todd, also known as Jade and Obsidian. So Jenny Lynn Hayden and Todd, Jade and Obsidian. Um, so the, this entire story arc is sort of told spottily throughout comics history and then retroactively told in this uh, Infinity Inc. annual. But I put it as my number three because for a long, long while, Alan Scott was just a statesman, a member of the JSA, so on and so forth. In this Infinity Inc. annual, he goes from statesman to father. And I think it makes a huge change, not not a huge change in terms of who he is, but his role in the DCU and the aspects of his personality. Especially when you consider that without this, you wouldn't have like Kyle dating Jade and Alan as his sort of mentor. And there are so many things that come out of the concept of Alan hooking up with Rose slash Thorn slash Alex to create Jade and Obsidian that there's so there's just I mean, there's so many branches. You have Infinity Inc. and the All-Star Squadron and all this stuff. You have Kyle dating Jade, you have the stuff with Obsidian, you have the heart of darkness and the star heart and the way Alan relates to the star heart and how the kids relate to the star heart. I mean, there's so many things that we won't bore you with the details with, but it's a huge, huge piece of Alan's development beyond just a golden age founder of the JSA statesman. Totally. Well, and I mean, I think the thing, the thing in there too is, uh, not in terms of like when the things were published, because obviously that's all over the place. But like, if you think in like the internal chronology of the DCU, it, it puts Alan as not only one of like the original superheroes, but it also puts him as one of the original superheroes to have a thing with one of his villains. <laughs> Twice. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thorn, and then later he dates uh, Molly Maine and marries her, who is Harlequin. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's got a bit of a track record. So does Batman, <laughs> I guess. But <laughs> Mark, anything to add? I don't have that much to add. It was a good choice, though. I didn't. That was when you told. That was kind of. I guess based on your love for Alan Scott, it shouldn't have surprised me too much that you would have gone there. But it it was. Alan Scott is a really good character. Uh, obviously, it would be nice to see more of him in the current DC. <laughs> you <laughs> eventually, kind of, sort of, some point. Well, we did just get a huge uh, Johnny Thunder sort of spotlight yeah. on uh, on Doomsday Three or whatever. Yeah. So far, there's only been just the light teasing about uh, Alan Scott, just in those yeah. extra pages from Doomsday Clock Two, I think. Yeah. And only, yeah. and only like a. Like a year and a half to go, and we'll find out what happens. <laughs> I know. I know. It's, it's going to be so long. Uh, now, 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 now you, have, you, you have to think this is at least... P- 
I have to put the blame on John's because everything John's touches always shit played. <laughs> you like to blame. No. It's easy to blame the artist, but when you Jeff John's has a pretty good track record of almost every project he's on always being delayed, whether it's Infinity Crisis, Blackest Night. <laughs> I mean, he it's sad but true. I mean, <laughs> so that's that's what happens when you when you get into those like big like epic stories and everything. He probably gets halfway through an individual script and goes like, ah, oh, shit, I forgot something. He's got to go <laughs> like, make sure everything's in there. But at least well, like, if, you, okay. if, you, if you read like the original script for like Rebirth, like for, forget like forgetting something, but how many times does he write a story and then change it like utterly four or yeah. five times? Yeah, <laughs> Even though not all of that, not all of that necessarily was his idea. Like, I don't know the idea of change. I don't know. I don't remember if the idea of changing uh, Gantt being possessed by Parallax make, as opposed to Batman, which is what was supposed to happen. I don't know if that was his call or not. That might have been that might have been to Dio's call to change that. But you're, I agree. Things change, but it's harder. It's not to go off on too much of this of this Doomsday Clock tangent. It's just hard, really, to understand why this should be such a delay when this thing has obviously been being planned for a while and it's not and yes he has responsibilities with the movies but it's not like he's writing a crap ton of books like he used to when he used to be involved in these projects you know he's really not writing anything so i mean maybe it's maybe actually this could i mean being objective maybe this really isn't his fault maybe this is the art maybe this is more of an art issue but if you're looking at the track record, no matter who his artist is, it always seems like there's delays in these events when Jeff Johns is doing them. No, I feel like Gary Frank did pretty well when uh, Superman's Secret Origin was coming out. Uh, I mean, th- I think I remember some small delays, but the Superman Secret Origin six-issue miniseries, I think, was relatively on time. And monthly. Re- and I don't remember if Forever Evil was delayed much. It might have been, but I don't remember. I don't remember the, the actual release schedule all that much. But I think I think seven got pushed back by a month, which threw off the chronology a little. Oh bit, yeah, you're, but, I think uh, you're right. I, I think you're right. Yeah, relatively because, on time. Yeah, I think you're right because it wasn't like one of the because they had to push back one of the Justice League issues or something too because of the actually yeah. because of the, the the Justice Crew stuff. I think. I think they had to push. Well, yeah, that back. and and Luthor joining the league and that they had to yeah, yeah they had to bump yeah. Justice League because. Of... All right, Doc, you're number three. All right, so like I said, it's uh, DC Comics Presents number 26. Um, so in that issue, um, we Superman uh, encounters who he thinks is Green Lantern, Hal Jordan, um, and uh, it's not. <laughs> it's a it's a faux Green Lantern, like a decoy. Um, and the reason that I picked this is that in this story, this decoy lantern creates kryptonite with its ring to incapacitate superman now it's not a hundred percent a lantern creating kryptonite but i think it is uh important because it maybe says more explicitly what is implied in other issues that not everything that a lantern creates is purely a light construct. And the best example of that is actually outside of this issue, but it's just their uniform. Their uniform acts, you know, as fabric. It could be like grabbed and pulled and torn and things like that. But it's technically a construct. If they take the ring off, the uniform goes away. And so I think what this issue 
does in terms of like when you're building sort of canonical evidence for what a Green Lantern can do is that it does show that um, even though everything comes from green light constructs, they can replicate either the textures, colors, um, uh, abilities of things that are not light related at all. Um, and, and I think in a way, something like that in that issue, and I mean, a lot of stuff in the Silver Age, I think people have a tendency to sweep under the rug or forget about, because a lot of it gets retconned or forgotten or, or whatever. But I think in a way, it makes, when Hal attempts to rebuild Coast City, um, I think it makes that like way more tragic, and his like turn to Parallax makes a lot more sense when you think that this issue sets up that that ring literally can do things that are beyond the scope of just light. Because when you first read Emerald Twilight and he tries to rebuild it, and you're like, that's never really going to take the place of the thing. It's just like green light versions of people in places that don't exist anymore. But when you realize that like what he's really trying to do is channel even more willpower to make those things permanent and real, and then you see what he tried to do as Parallax during Zero Hour, I actually think that this book is the thing that makes all of the motivation of those other things make sense. Um, there's, there's even... <laughs> I'm not going to remember which issue it is, but there's a Silver Age comic where Green Lantern literally turns himself into an envelope and has Pieface mail him to the bad guys. <laughs> like, it's... <laughs> So between this issue and that one, I think it sets up this idea that uh, with maybe enough willpower, that ring can do anything, which I think I will, is important. We said we were going to argue this in, in the Dr. DC episode, but we didn't, so mm-hmm. we'll argue it now. Yeah, there's, a it. Cav- there's a caveat, though. They're yes. in another time dimension. They are. So, and, and the way this dimension looks... I don't know if you guys remember the episode of Justice League, the animated series, where they go into that Cthulhu-esque dimension. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Th- that's where I feel like they are. And when you're in that sort of mind-bending reality space, I think he could simulate something that is like kryptonite or acts like kryptonite. But I don't think outside of that dimension you could. Yeah, because well, I- and- I feel it's it's part part ring, part mind bending physics. It it could and it could very well be, but I think to me, like I said, it's maybe it's weird to say that I'm picking this issue because maybe this issue is more incidental to the other evidence. But I think no 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 this is this is this is I for think you, this so is, it doesn't matter. I think this is like the linchpin though in the idea that like how come all of their costumes aren't just the glowing green energy from the movie, right? They actually act like fabric. Uh, How come he could turn himself into an envelope? How come he thinks he can bring back Coast City with just light? I think, to me, this issue is like the the piece, the missing piece of that puzzle, which is that I I think it's actually happening in that other dimension. I, I think that ring is actually making kryptonite, and this is the issue that shows that it can do it. Um, hmm. So I think that I think I I might be pulling in other things to make the argument. Maybe it's not self-contained in this issue, but I I think it's actually happening in there. Hey, it's also the first appearance of the new Teen Titans. <laughs> it, it absolutely is. <laughs> That's what the Green Lantern ring really made. <laughs> Mark, do you remember reading uh, that issue of DC Comics Presents? Actually, I do not remember reading that issue. It's 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 an interesting one because the whole thing isn't a cover. 
Uh, It's got all sorts of like side blurbs and like a very small portion of the cover is the image, but it's an image you've probably seen where Superman's in the foreground sort of crouched down, kind of shielding himself as Green Lantern's in the background, creating a giant sort of kryptonite meteor above his head. Sounds somewhat familiar. I can't. Yeah. It's it's vintage, like, Silver Age. It's, like, the healthy dose of sort of, like, silly dialogue and, like, weird sci-fi and things like that. Like, it's it's the perfect example of a Silver Age comic. But, <laughs> yeah. It gets pretty interesting towards the end, too, because Superman's like, well, I sort of left right before I was trying to catch a guy. I think he fell to his death. And, yeah. <laughs> and, and Hal's like, oh, don't worry. We can go back to right the second before and, like, they leap out and... Superman saves him, or Green Lantern actually saves him, I think, with a construct sort of cushion or something like that. Again, vintage but... silver. It's just no stakes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mark, go for it. So Green Lantern 25, uh, it is obviously part of the Sinestro Core War, but the relevance of it overall is super significant. Green Lantern 25 is what really introduces us to the emotional spectrum. It gives us a couple of really wonderful little, wonderful splash pages with the, when they're kind of showing all, giving, even though they're kind of like, not full, full reveals about all these other cores at first, but you kind of get, they touch about, you know, they have the hands clutching the orange battery, which of course is technically a screw up now because they have human hands clutching that battery when they were talking about how the power of, how the power of avarice was discovered by, you know, the one whose greed knows no end, and actually we know it's Laura Flees now, but at the time he thought it was a human being. It could be a flash-forward to Hal, you know. You know I that. always thought it was going to be Superboy Prime. That's who I thought mm. it was going to be, because it kind of would make sense because of his, his the greed and his desire to have his world back and nothing else. But either way, the influence of showing all the other cores, the Indigo Tribe, the Blue, and then leading to that... that Glorious double splash page which of, of an event we still technically have never had, which is the true War of Light where you have all the other cores squaring off when you first get to see the first ren- renderings of Atrocitus and and St. Walker, among others, and Arkillo. Actually, not Arkillo. Uh, uh, there's somebody... My, I think Monk. I think Monk is actually, is actually in there, too. Or it looks like it might be Monk. But... So I think... And... And, of course, because of the fact that at the end of 25, almost like a tease, they give you that little teaser trailer at the end telling you about, uh, yeah, how, you know, we kind of like with the beats, I think they mentioned how, in, you know, in 2000, 2000, something about 2005, Hal Jordan returned, and like 2007 was the Sinestro Corps War, and in 2009, the dead, will ri- the dead shall rise, and Black, the, the knowing the blackest night. Is coming plus twenty plus twenty five ends with the anti monitor getting sucked getting sucked right into the uh, and getting trapped. Doesn't it end? At, isn't that how it ends? It just ends with him getting sucked. <laughs> <Ooh. laughs> no, you gotta yeah, go. Go with a smile. <laughs> that's actually one of the, that's actually one of the one of the great moments of of that issue is, is the anti monitor has been reduced to energy uh, without his sort of shell. Yes. And is on the ground on riot, just like crawling, and then all of a sudden you hear what we now know as Necron's voice, and this black battery reaches up around him and closes, and like you're you're it's it's a relatively like quiet panel in terms of sound effect or and or uh, uh, narrative bubbles or whatever, 
But like, I don't know a single person who alive who reads that that portion of the comic and doesn't hear this giant bass cosmic door closing sort of sound. Yeah. Like totally. we're just boom. <laughs> you know, and you're like, oh shit, what is this? So like it's 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 a it's a pretty well done panel. <clears throat> but yeah, twenty five for sure. I mean we've debated back and forth on if this is like a good single issue to give somebody. Because there are there there are issues of almost any series where you can be like, oh, read this one issue of Batman if you've never read, read a comic before or whatever. But it's so hard for you and I, Mark, at least, to be like, hey, this one issue of Green Lantern, this, this one single issue you should try. Um, there is a fair amount of exposition in that one, though. Like, in a way, I think you're probably true. right. It probably does make, like, an okay introduction because you get a little bit of, like, a crash course. Yeah, in, like, the new, sort of, the new sort of status quo for the Green Lantern sort of mythos. Right, because it kind of gives you a flashback and gives you a flash of the present and it also gives you a flash forward of what's about to come. So it, it, is, it is actually a good, a good jumping on point. It absolutely is. For sure. All right, Doc, you're number two. All right. Uh, this one's a, a twofer. It's a Green Lantern Volume 2, number 40. And Crisis on Infinite Earths number seven. <laughs> you stole my number one. <laughs> uh, I'll talk more in depth about it, but that's my number one. Uh, oh, now I feel like I really have to justify why mine's number two and not number one. Sorry. <laughs> right. uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe I'll just join in instead of talking about my number one. I'll just join in with you. I don't know. Make sure. it kind of save some time. Uh, Mark, your number two. Green Lantern Rebirth as a whole. All right, my number two, Green Lantern, Green Arrow. That is the Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams run specifically, issues 76 through 89. All right. Take it away, uh, Doc. All right, you got it. So, well, Chad, you, you picked this for your number one. You know where I'm going with this. So <laughs> between uh, Green Lantern, volume two, number 40, and Crisis on Infinite Earths, number seven, we get the story of Krona. Um, uh, we in the the former issue we just see that old experiment gone wrong. He witnesses the moment of creation, and, uh, but it doesn't really get expanded on of like what the impact of that act is. We know you're not supposed to see the moment of creation. We know it causes problems, but it's not until Crisis on Infinite Earths number seven that we realize that when he did that, not it it created the multiverse it created the infinite earths it sort of fractured reality and it also more importantly created um the antimatter universe and of course then the anti-monitor the opposite of the positive um matter uh, universe and the positive monitor um and this is important in terms of the actual like structure upon which all subsequent dc kind of um multiverse theory is built um the the infinite earths like the parallel earths had long been a thing in comics they introduced it in, in flash number 123 with the flash of two worlds and just wrote <laughs> off the golden age as earth two it like that and then they had all these crises on whatever earth three or earth x or whatever they wanted to do and 
it wasn't until we get to Crisis on Infinite Earths that they actually explained that this this piece of Green Lantern lore is actually tied into like the actual history and fabric of the nature of existence. Krona is the reason that there are multiple Earths. Krona is the reason that there's an anti-monitor. He's in in his own way, he's the source of now this ultimate destruction, which is the crisis. Um, so I, I find it interesting in the same way that, you know, as we've talked about with like Jeff Johns, taking something that was maybe like a little bit touched on and then expanding it or giving it new meaning or giving it deeper meaning is that Crisis on Infinite Earths number seven takes that Green Lantern 40 story of Krona and then gives it a whole new resonance by basically upping the stakes, tying it into the entire multiverse. Yeah, it's my number one because, uh, Doc, you don't know this because you, you you guys don't play any other podcast promos on your show, but we have our, me and Mark uh, recorded two different uh, promos and for our show for uh, our fellow podcasters to play on, on their episodes. And one of those promos, we say, that the history of the DC universe is the history, or the history of Green Lantern is the history of the DC universe. This totally is our, true. this is our proof. Without Green Lantern and the Green Lantern lore uh, that existed in the Silver Age and so on and so forth, even some to some extent the Golden Age, you wouldn't have the DC universe as it exists now um, because of these two issues, uh, which I'm proud to say I own Green Lantern 40. <laughs> A lot of people say Flash 123, you mentioned the Flash of Two Worlds, is by far the most important issue when it comes to the multiverse. Okay, I can see your point. However, I would argue Green Lantern 40 is equally as important. Not like just a a secondary, but as on par important uh, to the history of the multiverse. It's the the sleeper issue, though, right? Like Green Lantern 40 only becomes Im- like that important in the context of crisis seven. Right. Uh, um, but you know, I when, mean, if, it, if you were looking at it beforehand, it's gotta be flash one twenty three. but yeah, I know I totally agree with you. Once we get to the point where all of that is sort of retconned into place, then yeah, that story in green lantern 40 becomes like a huge, huge part of DC history. For sure. Uh, and um, in, in green lantern 40, what, is unleashed by Krona is, is just essentially evil. They talk about how brother kills brother and yeah. so on and so forth. Um, but both in that issue and in this issue and, and in crisis seven, it's essentially said that the, that though Krona is the one who did this, Krona is one of the guardians and as such, the guardians still feel responsible because one of their own did this to the universe. So yeah. Krona's actions are the reason the guardians decide to protect the universe, which they first do with the Manhunters, which is mentioned in Crisis 7, but that's a failed experiment, so the Green Lantern Corps is created. So this this is the linchpin for the origins of Green Lantern, the Guardian's sort of um, biggest mistake. This is the origin of the multiverse, the antimatter universe, the anti-monitor and monitor. Uh, I mean, it's it's all here. Not to mention, this is something that is so epic and legendary that the image that Krona sees when he looks back in time of the hand holding the, the galaxy or whatever is yeah. the image you see from now on, essentially, in the DC universe. Anytime someone yeah. wants to talk about this subject. And this is what Pariah did. 
he replicated Corona's experiment. So there's there's so many tendrils that reach out from these two issues. And it totally makes sense to that all of these things tie together. There's obviously there's a long history of Green Lanterns and the antimatter universe when you're talking about Quard and the Weaponers and things like that. There's also uh, then like later after Crisis, who is it that tries who that starts the Crisis in Time and tries to rewrite <laughs> time itself? It's former Green Lantern, Hal Jordan, Parallax. Like it's it's this constant loop of. Yeah, you, I think you're right. The Flash often gets sort of the the spotlight or the credit as being tied to these sort of multiversal events, but Green Lantern is just as in there. He's almost like the unsung like mythology of all of the crises. You know, the Flash plays a, maybe a more um, like overt part, but like behind the scenes, the, the way that the cogs of the universe are turning all, all seem to bend towards Green Lantern. Yeah, because you know, Flash. Yeah, you can go there. But hey, this entire thing exists because of this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, precisely. Yeah. Yeah. Mark? It's always Krona. <laughs> Echoing that theme, it's always Krona. <laughs> and, and how it has been, you know, how, now, it's, you know, that, jo- that joke wouldn't even work if it wasn't for <laughs> those issues. <laughs> And yeah, you can thank you can thank those issues for that. You can thank those issues for that. That it's always if there's somebody screwing screwing around with the fabric of time and doing things you shouldn't do and sucking life out of the universe, putting evil into it, sucking energy out of it, and all that stuff. It's it's Krona, all that Krona. But (laughs) (laughs) but again, kind of echoing thoughts that we were just that you guys were just mentioning the idea that. Yeah, when you really think about it, when you have these big crisis level events, that uh, Green Lanterns, one way or the other, are they, they do tend to be tied in it. The Green, obviously, Hal and company played a big role in in what Infinite Crisis, dr- basically drawing that line against Superboy Prime. Um, so that was that was kind of relevant. We saw even in uh, God help us, we saw even in Convergence because how important Parallax was to basically undoing the crisis. The actual crisis on Infinite Earth saw the entire multiverse would sur- survive instead of being destroyed the way it was. So yeah, you, we we can all take all these back to this glorious moment of of Krona being a douche. <laughs> Some things never change. It's a nice way to sum it up. Yeah. <laughs> all right, go for it, Mark. Rebirth. I mean, Rebirth pretty much stands on its own. I think it doesn't need a huge introduction. But at that point, but maybe a little bit, only from the point of view that obviously at the, at, at the time before before Rebirth, you know, Kyle was still Green Lantern, but that book was starting to wind down as far as being a big seller. I mean, it seemed like Kyle had kind of peaked. Doesn't mean they couldn't have revamped him, but obviously nothing had really kind of jump started it again. Certainly since the Mars and Banks era kind of kind of kind of ended. So. It kind of was naturally paving the way, and, and I'm sure Jeff, in the back of his mind, Jeff Johns probably had. I would like I one of the things we would I would we would we've talked about asking him if we ever get the opportunity, of course, would be when he first did like Judgment Day and brought Hal back as the Spectre. Was that kind of like step one that he already have in his mind's eye? How, given the opportunity, how he's going to bring Hal back as Green Lantern? Because as a as a as a Hal fan at the time, I had pretty much 
I had kind of given up on Hal becoming Green Lantern again, and I was okay with it because I liked Hal as a Spectre because, in a way, technically he was more powerful. Uh, arguably, he was more powerful. Maybe it's, it is questionable if you go back to the peak of Parallax power right after he absorbed the central power battery and was beginning Zero Hour. But he, but he had a, he was serving a noble mission seeking redemption on his own by helping other people find redemption. So I was kind of looking forward to that moment when Hal was going to continue along this journey and eventually there'd be this, again, this big crisis-like story they would do where Hal would make the ultimate sacrifice probably and he would be forgiven and he would and he would get to go to heaven and boom that would end that would end Hal Jordan. So I was kind of I was kind of a little nervous about how they were going to bring how they were going to approach bringing Hal Jordan back. And they made it clear from the get-go that it was about bringing back the Green Lantern mythos, the core and everything. It wasn't just about bringing back Hal Jordan. So when so when Rebirth first started coming out, you know the way the, the way it was it was very well written, very well drawn. It was there were some subtleties that you didn't pick, that when you first read it, if you really weren't paying attention, you might you might overlook stuff like with when Paral, when Suspector was dealing with with uh, Black Hand, how he had that kind of moment when he kind of wasn't really he was kind of still wearing the Spectre's cloak, but he really was parallax underneath the way his armor was and and the, and the way the glove was and things like that. That there were some subtle things in there that. At the time, you you kind of thought a little bit of, and you may have thought, oh, maybe you know this is Parallax jumping back into time again, or jump, jumping ahead to take over the Spectre because he knew what you know how was going to be inside and all this stuff. But just the way they, just the way they, just the way that Johns put all the pieces together when you had issue three, I believe, when you had the whole reveal of the origin tying into the entity and tying it into Sinestro and how you know, Parallax called out, you know, the entity called out. Called out to Hal to explain the great temples. They have the, the, they even had that really nice panel, which again it's not, it's it's Daryl's artwork when you know in the original issue, so it was cool. But I, Parallax without his cape just does not look really good at all. Thank God they added oh. in the cape, but they but they kind of replicate that that first scene of Parallax, you know, when he's outside steps out of the central power battery with his you know with his hand raised and the energy coming off of it. And then they just do the retcon of it of him basically having the parallax entity behind him, almost like him stroking the entity. That was like, in a way, that was like the pinnacle of the quintessential example. If you're going to do like a retcon slash Jeffcon, that's how you do it. Because it's not, we saw the same scene originally, but now you're seeing something in that scene that you couldn't have possibly seen before, but it didn't change things. Yeah, there's some flaws with it. I always point this out. It doesn't really explain why. It was always a shaky proposition, where especially an entity based on fear, why it would have a whole lot of faith that it was that things were going to how why it would let itself be sacrificed in Final Night. Because if he if it knew in the future it was going to be how was going to come back at the Spectre, then you think how would know that too? Because that could only that knowledge could only be gained by time traveling during how time jumping. Parallax would know that on his own. So that was kind of shaky why Parallax, an entity born out of fear, would be willingly basically not free himself for Hal as he was about to die <laughs> in the sun. You think, this is a good time to get out of Dodge. And, of course, the Parallax name, which I will always go back to. It makes no sense for a fear entity, but it made perfect sense for what Hal was after Emerald Twilight since he was seeing things from a different perspective. 
that the universe hadn't the universe hadn't changed, but Hal was looking at it differently. So so it seems to have changed, like the quintessential parallax we all can do in our everyday life, which which is when you lay on the side of your bed in a pillow, you close one eye, the pillow's over here, you close and open the other eye, the pillow's down here. Pillow doesn't move. Yeah, a- actual actual parallax vision. Right, an actual pa- the uh, you know the, an actual what pa- what a parallax really is. Not in the time-space aspect of what a parallax is, but the basic breaking it down to what it truly is. It's just looking at when an object appears to move because you're looking at it from a different perspective. And that was perfect for what, for what, what Hal was. doesn't really fit a fear entity. But the way Rebirth set the stage to bring back the core, uh, reestablish Hal Jordan as Green Lantern, give a plausible explanation for why Hal should not necessarily be held 100% accountable for everything he did on his own. There was also the cool moment when he knocked Batman on his ass. That was that was cool. And yes, from an understanding perspective, it would have made more sense for, for Batman to be possessed by Parallax. If you were looking for that instant, for that moment of forgiveness and understanding a little more natural, it would have made sense for, for Batman to experience what Hal did and realize that despite his will too, that he only had so much control. Um... But to me, that in that is what has really modernized Green Lantern, and, and, and even though it's ob- we've obviously seen the franchise gone a hell of a lot closer to where it was, probably at the end of the Kyle run right now, over the last few years compared to what it was. But during that time, from like 2004, I think when Rebirth started through 2005, and then the relaunch of the series and everything else, at least through, at least probably through. 2013 when Jeff Johns left that book that was the a lot of people don't like what Jeff Johns did and you don't have to like all of it I don't like all of it but you can't argue with how successful and how popular he made the character and this is and this was probably if it's not the best example of, of Jeff Johns work it's right up there and I think that's what yeah, yeah. I mean and even more than even more than something like Infinite Crisis which like, was also uh, very good Infinite Crisis I really well, liked like rebirth is like Green Lantern rebirth is it sort of sets Jeff Johns up as the guy you go to when you don't want to completely erase something, but you basically want to like bring it back to where it was, but keep everything that came before it. <laughs> like every rebirth thing that's happened since then, everything that like Jeff Johns touches, like uh, going back and looking at sort of like uh, wacky Silver Age villains or anything like that, he doesn't throw away too much of their original stories but he does like realign it or like re redefine things so that it makes sense and moves it in a new direction yeah and if you're paying attention to green lantern rebirth i mean it sets up more than just what mark mentioned yep. it sets up even the emotional spectrum yep there's a yep. Pa- there's a pa- there's a panel where ollie and kyle are having a conversation and he says as he's recharging, Kyle says the central pa- the central battery the Guardians made it collects willpower from every living being in the universe, raw emotional willpower converted into energy, amplified by our own a million times over. There's an emotional electromagnetic spectrum out there that can be harnessed and used. Green willpower yeah. is the most pure, and then Ollie interrupts. So, yeah. I mean, there's so many things in there that if you're paying attention and you know. This leads rebirth, to rebirth. Well, I mean, this isn't a surprise, but Green Lantern Rebirth all the way through Blackest Night is basically one story. 
yeah. with multiple chapters. But it, it's like, like you said, it's stuff that's set up in there pays off all the way through Blackest Night and everything that came in between. And the art, some of the artistic cues, like you know, uh, if you watch the documentaries, uh, that, at least that's how I figured out about it. You know, the Sinestro, the way Sinestro is drawn. Every single time he's fighting anybody until Hal comes back, he's just floating there with his hands crossed, letting the ring do the work. But when Hal shows up, he starts moving <laughs> and, you know, throwing punches and so on and so forth. To Sinestro, everybody else is beneath him, but Hal shows up and that's the challenge. That's when he needs to get his hands dirty. And then there are things like, you know, when Parallax says the very creepy thing after Coast City's being rebuilt and he explodes that apartment building and he says something to Hal along the lines of, I have no interest anymore in keeping you ha- placated or whatever. And you're like, oh shit, what? <laughs> <laughs> you know, stuff like that. And it's just like, and in this whole story arc, really, you know, leads me to the thing that, you know, some people, <laughs> Doc, disagree with me on. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> like Parallax, Hal Jordan is responsible for his actions as Parallax. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> we, we don't have enough time to get into that right now. Yeah. <laughs> agree, to, agree, to, agree to disagree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, my number two. Um Green Lantern, Green Arrow, the Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams run specifically those issues from 76, which is the start, to 89, which is the end until he appears and starts appearing again in the flashback ups. Um, this is, it was close to my number one, but just considering the impact of the, the, of the DC multiverse and how many other titles and important story arcs and so on and so forth that reaches, I had to make that number one. But this is a close second. Uh, everybody knows I do my Green Lantern, Green Arrow spinoff podcast focusing on this series. Um, I won't go too far in depth. I'll give a brief thing in history, and then that's it. Back in the 70s, late 60s, Green Lantern sales are dying. Julie Schwartz, my hero, editor at DC Comics at the time, calls in Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams and tells them to save the title. Well... As with anything, as we've heard actually from Ron Mars himself uh, before, when a title is dying, this is the best time for you to do whatever the hell you want. Try something new. Uh, So Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams do just that. And in the very first issue, they show Hal to be sort of ignorant on the way things work down here because he stops a young man from throwing things at a big fat cat landlord guy. But uh, then it turns out that this guy owns a slum and keeps people living in poverty and so on and so forth. And as Oliver Queen leads him up to a building, this uh, old black man says, I've seen you done a lot of things for the purple skins and the orange skins. Answer me this, Mr. Green Lantern. What have you done for the black skins? And all of a sudden, this big cosmic 60s goofy title comes down to Earth real quick. And you are stuck here on planet Earth with our problems, Hal Jordan, and how are you going to deal with it? And from then on, this series is in the muck uh, with you, with Oliver and Hal and sometimes Dinah Lance, Black Canary, and sometimes, and uh, for a little while, Apaliopsa, a.k.a. Old Timer, a guardian of the universe. And it deals with pollution, racism, um, workers' rights, so on and so forth. And one of the most important issues of all time 
Green Lantern, Green Arrow, or Green Lantern 85, where on the cover, Speedy, is sh- which is Green Arrow's sidekick, is shooting up heroin on the cover. Uh, and that is important for several reasons, not just because it's an important comic and an important topic speaking to kids, but in relation to comic book history, period, in the Comics Code Authority. Um, so this series is important to Green Lantern. This series is important to comics history. This series is important to the comics industry, uh, and uh, which I'll be covering relatively soon, at least sometime this year. Uh, this is the series, which is Green Lantern uh, 87, the introduction of Jon Stewart to the, uh, to the mythos. So not only is it, is it important to the mythos and the universe, but to comic book history and the comic book industry as a whole. So, I don't know. I, you, I, I have talked about it multiple times, both on the main show, on guest appearances, on other shows, on my spinoff. I don't need to go into any more waxing rhapsodic on it. So, Mark, uh, Doc, you guys take it from here or whatever you want to add in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, there's there's not – I mean, without really, like, getting into it, there's not too much more to say, but you're – I mean, other than what you already have. But I think the, the big point in there is the one that you brought up nearest the end is, like, the impact in terms of what it did for the – industry you know like having that image on a on a cover of (laughs) speedy shooting heroin that like broke the cca like wide open um that that is i think you can make the argument like maybe the proto or the start of the like the bronze age i know it's not technically but i think you can make you can make that argument because of where well the start of the series Green Lantern 76. Uh, I wouldn't yeah. say Green Lantern 85 is, but Green Lantern 76 is probably the start of the Bronze Age. But just that whole idea that and and you know promoting the social justice issues and and yeah taking a character that can like divert comets and <laughs> sitting him down with the issue of poverty and saying like now how do you fix it like like what construct fix pop fix poverty uh, like that to yeah I mean it's it was ahead of its time, or well, it, it was both ahead of its time and also far too late. But, um, but I, yeah, I think there's something really special about it. It really paved the way for a lot of what comic book writing has become since then. Mm-hmm. Mark, doubt, I know I, yeah, I, I know I had you on. I know you had I had you on the uh, eight, the eighty five and eighty six episode, but I know we didn't speak too much general terms about the series overall so i mean kind of kind of what doc said and what you and what you and i talked about too we it, it this the whole run besides that i mean obviously those issues in particular but the whole run how relevant it is it's it's relevant enough for people who haven't haven't even really read those issues still if you're a comic fan you know of them you know they have mm-hmm. kind of stood the test of time at this point as i mean that is that is memorable. We we also you know in context of that of that episode we talked about you know the, the Harry Osborn thing in Spider-Man too you know being on drugs which is the, the pill popping and everything and that Green Goblin arc. But you know I think Green Arrow, Green Lantern, that the run is memorable for all the dealing with all the social issues at the time. The the Speedy thing is super super memorable, like. 
I had never read those. I obviously knew of them. I'd never read those issues until we were until I was coming on coming on the spinoff to talk about them. So it obviously you know it makes perfect sense that it's you know right near the top of your list here and it belongs there and especially if if we were making a general list not just moving any personal feelings aside just from a, just looking at it from a historic perspective I mean absolutely that would happen there's no doubt that would always be in the top five but it'd probably be always be I th- I think it would almost almost be guaranteed to be in the top two probably if you were just going on histor on a historical relevance not just on sales or you know just like the zeitgeist of a moment or something something that has come and gone but stood the test of time that it definitely belongs at the top of any Green Lantern event or arc or run no matter how you define it or issues even a single issue or single uh, just a single storyline. For sure. I've interviewed both uh, Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams directly myself. Uh, Denny twice, Neil once. And, um, you know, uh, Neil is fond of saying, while Green Lantern, Green Arrow didn't uh, directly 100% by itself destroy the code, uh, those those few issues kind of between 76 and and 87, or 86, uh, 76 and 86, uh, he, he likes to say, quote, took the fangs out of the comics code because the comics code didn't officially die until 2011. But, uh, the, the, as, as, uh, Neil Adams puts it, you know, the fangs were out after, after the, uh, Speedy Does Drug story. Yeah. All right. Number ones, Mark, you're up. Emerald Twilight. Doc? Uh, Green Lantern, Volume 1, Number 9. And I already said mine, so <laughs> the uh, the uh, uh, Origins of the Multiverse, which is Green Lantern 40 and Crisis uh, Number 7, so we already spoke to that. So, Mark, take it away. It was kind of debatable at first wh- where Emerald Twilight was going to rank in this, but again, if you're looking at historic significance, despite you know for pro and con, Emerald Twilight had to be on this list somewhere. Uh, I look at Emerald Twilight because again it was a it was a it it was a jumping on point, but again I'm looking I come at it from a different perspective. Like I mentioned previously, that I started reading with Kyle. I actually started didn't really start reading the Green Lantern regularly till 51. Though I always also say I do remember 50 because I flipped through it when I was working still working at Walden Books when I was putting it out on the rack. It's like, oh, what's so special about this? Because I just skimmed through it and I saw Hal still looking, still having an armor and everything else. It's like, oh, so what they do? Just change his look? But I hadn't been really flip. I hadn't flipped through 48 or 49, so that would have helped. But just the relevance of that, the idea that they were starting over with a complete clean slate. And the pros and cons to doing that. Obviously, there, there was a lot of ha- lot of hell that you know Ron Mars caught. Ron Mars caught most of it, even though Kevin Dooley probably deserved more of it, <laughs> realistically, uh, and kind of like skirted, I think, the responsibility for that. Even though, and Ron, I mean, I'm I'm sure he may not have expected all the venom that he got, but obviously, I think Ron certainly didn't think must have expected at least a little bit of about pushback. But first, your, your DeMars and Banks team that was that was pretty relevant in Green Lantern history. You had the cre- you know you had the creation of a brand new character, a brand new Green Lantern, 
kind of changing the power, changing the rules of the ring to a, to a certain extent. No more yellow weakness. No more twenty, you know, no more twenty-four hour time limit. You had, you still had, you had the, you had the changing of Hal from the straight-laced ultimate, you know, classic conservative good guy, and then all of a sudden, here he is, kind of like, kind of almost like a Darth, having a Darth Vader, a Darth Vader like fall. And though, as both Ron and and Daryl will tell you that they never saw Hal as a villain, which is the main reason nobody writes. Nobody has really written, other than maybe Dan Jurgens and Zero Hour, nobody has really written Parallax that well, other than or had cre- has d- represented him well than his original creators in, in Mars and Banks because they both got what, the essence. The essence of who Hal Jordan was was still there. He had just been pushed to a breaking point. He broke. He did things differently. He looked at things from a different perspective. But the essence of what made and Ganth had kind of addressed, and of course Ron wrote this issue too. But when when you had Parallax Emerald Knight right before fi- the final final night issue came out, you had Ganthet speaking to Hal and making it clear that you know the essence of who you were was still has never changed. What you made you know what made you our greatest champion is still inside you. So that that's what they didn't get about Hal, and based on where Hal was and what he needed to do afterwards. Emerald Twilight kind of set the stage for that, and it made sense because Hal was the the ultimate. Yeah, he questioned the Guardians. He wasn't one of these yes sir, no sir, just go along with every single thing and never say anything. He was kind of like, and I can relate to this too. He's somebody who's perfectly content to follow orders, but you kind of need an explanation. If you understand what the, what the rationale is, it's easier for he, for you to follow orders. Kind of like for anybody who's seen 2010. Uh, the year we make contact, when they're trying to, when they reactivate the Hal, you know, computer, everybody's nervous that Hal's not going to, not going to do what he needs to do in order for them to, to escape and, and head back home because they need Hal to fire those engines at the right time, but they're afraid Hal's going to like not, he's going to go 2001 on him again, and he's starts questioning, and then once, the, and once, once he he gets explained the reason why he you need to do this. He just says, "Oh, I understand now. I'm, I'm, that, I'm, that's, I'm fine with that." And that's kind of like the way, I, Hal was similar in the perspective that he would question the Guardians, he, but he always believed they had the greater good in mind. And you get to the point where he just keeps put, he gets pushed and pushed and pushed. And he, yes, what he was really asking for wasn't just a little favor. There's no doubt about it. The idea of bringing back Coast City was not just a little favor. But it was just a fact. It was just a realization that every time that the one time he asked for something after all those years of sacrificing everything, pretty much he was kind of like flipped the bird on a cosmic level, and that just made him realize how what was wrong with the not was just what was what was wrong with the Guardians, but what was wrong in the universe. And that was part of what Hal's mission was to set up a new, basically a new hierarchy where there was actually going to be a Guardian of the universe that actually was going to be proactive and not just sit there. And as Hal called them, impotent shams, like he referred to them in, uh, in Emerald Twilight. So pretty much every, so much of what we know now, even before the retconning, the Jeff conning in Rebirth, so much of what we know now, what has at all comes from Emerald Twilight and the chain, and, and we wouldn't have had Kyle without Emerald Twilight and the relevance of Parallax even before the whole entity thing. And so I think Emerald Emerald Twilight is 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 huge. Yeah, they 
they, I mean, you can, you can talk about the fall of a hero all you want. And, you know, I'm sure the doc could rattle off five different, you know, heroes that have fallen from grace in the DCU at various times. (laughs) But, but, but this is the one, I mean, it has to be, and this is not just as a biased green lantern fan. I mean, it is, uh, they killed Superman and they, you know, broke Batman's back. But this is something else entirely. They broke the man. They they completely evolved this character beyond a hero into something else. I mean, it's like that line from uh, one of the Batman movies. You, you know, live long enough to see yourself become the villain or whatever. Uh, you die a hero, you live long enough to see yourself yeah. become the villain. This is... And how did this both? Is, <laughs> yeah, this, this, this is... And this is... It, 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 when you take into consideration... Uh, just the timeline of when this happened in the DCU. Sure, I'm sure a lot of people got pissed off and blah blah blah. But I mean, this is this is a ballsy ass move for for them to pull, and they did it, and it was a good story. Uh, and, and then you take into context, you know, where we are in in time in 2018, and look at the complete arc that Hal had, and he was. I mean, considering how long he was out of the picture, not that just out of the picture, but you know, going from, you know, this to the final night stuff to then becoming the Spectre. I mean, he had this big arc of redemption, sort of. Even though you get the how the Jeff Johns and the fear bug thing and all that explanation, it's still, it's still kind of a redeeming arc, regardless of your explanation for it. It's still a redemption arc. Um, and it's just like, you know, Batman got better. Superman got better, but this was something that stuck for a long well, I think time. That, I think the, the big difference there is that it's one thing to take someone off the table by killing them or by crippling them, as as happened to a number of characters. You know, Flash, Superman, Batman, Green Arrow, you know, list goes on. Um, Black Canary, even. Um, but it's another thing to, like... Well, like you said, Mark, they didn't fundamentally change how, but he changed his outlook, changed his perspective. But it, but that is the the real like ballsy move. It's one thing to like alter the status quo for your hero, but what they what they did to how could only have taken a long time to circle back. You know, maybe not necessarily as long as it took to get to Green Lantern Rebirth, but it, you couldn't have immediately, even in the context of Final Night and stuff like that, immediately have brought him back to life. He needed that arc as the Spectre and attempting to shift that to, you know, from vengeance to redemption and things like that. He needed that whole um, arc to, for it to make any sort of sense, because what they what they did was take a character that people like loved and identified with. And all they did was just give them this like little bit of little nudge just off course, but it completely changed the course of those stories. And that wasn't like a, that's not a simple thing to undo if you wanted to. So I think that's, I think that's what's so, like you said, ballsy about it. It's like you can, yeah, Batman broke his back. It's like, Oh, here's like a, brace so you could walk or like you know like superman died like oh, i was a kryptonian regeneration matrix like you just you could undo death more easily than you can undo like the moral shift in hal jordan hmm. nicely put 
All right, Doc, bring us home. All right. Uh, this this one is is very simple. Um, uh, Screen Lantern, Volume 1, Number 9. There's not a ton to explain. It is, if I've done my research correctly, the first appearance of the modern Green Lantern Oath. Uh, uh, Alan, it's Alan Scott saying it, but instead of his, like, it's kind of non-rhyming oath that he had for a bit, and then he went back to in the Silver Age. Uh, this is the first appearance of In Brightest Day and Blackest Night, No Evil Shall Escape My Sight. Let those who worship evils might beware my power, Green Lantern's light. And that's, I mean, I don't, I don't have like a big philosophical rant about it. I think that's probably, well, I put it at the top of my list because that oath sums up the the whole core concept of the emotional spectrum of like Green Lantern of what he symbolizes and what he represents. Um, and that's the first time that it shows up in the way that we know it today. And it's like super iconic now, but that's its first appearance. Do you remember the context of that? Was it, I mean, was, was it any sort of significant moment in terms of like, who he was fighting or whatever. No. And that, that was, this is the thing with the golden age stories. I, what, where it really comes out of is that they were basically like workshopping oaths a little bit. Um, there are a couple of versions, but, um, but this one ended up sticking. It, it's, it's only sort of relevant or it only resonates because it's unchanged now. Um, but in terms of like the actual story of that issue, it doesn't like play a big part. It's not even like a thing where he's like, you know, like how they d- did it in the. I hate to bring up the movie, but you know how they did it in the movie where he's like, you know, he's like up against the wall and he like uses it as the mantra to give him the strength to fight parallax or whatever. It, it's not even something like that. It's just go to charge your ring. Here's a new oath, <laughs> and it ended up being the one that stuck. Um, so like the issue itself isn't. <laughs> necessarily like full of emotional resonance but it's historically significant because of what came afterward for sure i mean and it's actually the the, i mean it's the closest one to the og og oath and i shall shed my light on dark evil for dark things cannot stand the light the light of the green lantern but Mm. it's just more extrapolated so yeah and and a little more like poem form like it has like a rhyme scheme and syllable counts and things like that in it but uh but yeah alan scott did go back to that original oath for a little bit during the silver age and that was partly how they would differentiate uh between the earth one and earth two green lanterns but um but yeah and actually i think that original oath also gets used by other lantern doesn't tomar ray use that uh, I don't know about Tomar Ray or some, or, specifically, or some but yeah. of it. there's a there's a couple of like no, there's there are some people who members of the core who use who use Alan's oath, and then obviously there's other core uh, members who use like versions of the oath. Uh, like, isn't there? There's I, I'm not going to remember uh, the character's name, but there's one who's blind, so his is all about like in, lot la, in loudest something in. Uh, um, and the loudest Phil thing has or one about profound, my ears correct, have the yeah. evil slightest sound or something like that. Like exactly, those who toll one. out evils now, beware my power, the F sharp bell. Yes, that's the one. Yeah. And, 
memory Medfield baby has one that's medfield has one that's like plant-based and things like that like there are there are lots of like versions of the oaths but yeah that uh the one that we know as like the green lantern oath that showed up in green lantern number nine so that's why i picked it good choice for sure yeah there's really no, no, no extrapolation needed i mean it's the oath <laughs> yeah i mean i think that's it's, I, th- I don't think it's a more like concise point for me to end on than that one. It's like, that's pretty much the reason I picked it. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Those are our top five most important moments in Green Lantern history for Ooh, us. We did it. That's right. If you no, guys that's have... it. That's, those are the definitive top fives. <laughs> those are facts. Enter them into the, into the history books. We did it. If you guys have your own uh, top five list or anything you want to add to any of ours, don't hesitate to reach out to us and provide us those. Um, but before we give you the closing information, Doc, thanks for coming on the show, man. Thank you for having me. And thank you guys for having been on uh, on our show, too. It was, it was a ton of fun to like get really into Green Lantern. It's been, it was really cool. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, absolutely. We had a blast. Um so before we do our closing, you want to tell people how they can find your show and reach out to you guys? Yeah, I mean, the easiest way to do it is just search Dr. DC Podcast. We're on Facebook and Instagram under that name. I'm on Twitter at Dr. DC. Uh, and then our website is drdcpodcast.com or .ca. All of our episodes are up there. We're on iTunes and Google Play and Libsyn and a few other uh, services. But yeah, so... Hopefully you'll check us out. At least listen to that Green Lantern episode because you'll get to hear Chad and Mark deal with us. <laughs> <laughs> and then listen to the Ragman episode. <laughs> okay. Of Which course, is already listen to your the Ragman most, episode. It's, already, it's, it's your most popular episode to date, right? Oh, far and away. Like, and, and, and it hasn't slowed down is the thing, right? It's not like it was our most popular one and the other ones just dropped off. It's that it has no signs of slowing down. Ragman is... Keeping the lights on at the Dr. DC <laughs> podcast. Yes! It's your dream all come right. true, Chad. That's right. That's right. Uh, all right, Mark, you want to tell people how they can reach out to us? I reckon so, Chad. <laughs> uh, lanterncast.com, that is the website. Email lanterncast at gmail.com. We are on Twitter and Facebook. Use hashtag GOcast to locate us on either of those iTunes and Stitcher, we are available on both platforms, so whichever ones you listen to us on, please leave us a positive review, and last but not least, the voicemail, uh, 708Lantern, 708Lantern, and let us know what you think. All right, guys, we'll talk to you later. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night.